Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, Daniel, a continuation of chapter 5. Well, we spent almost our entire time together last week dealing with only a couple of issues. First, the transition from Daniel chapter 4 and this long 43-year reign of King Nebuchadnezzar to chapter 5 and the final days of the Babylonian Empire under another Babylonian king. But the second matter that we camped on expressed in the opening three words of Daniel chapter 5 are Belshazzar the king. Those three little words. Those three little words have been seen for scores of years, if not more, as a problem. And this is because until fairly recently there was no known record of any king of Babylon named Belshazzar. Other, of course, than in the Bible. And for Bible academics of the school of Bible or literary criticism, The Bible, unlike almost any other ancient document, is automatically considered unreliable until some other non-Hebrew source confirms the information. However, much to the dismay of Bible skeptics, the discovery of the Uruk king list along with the Nabonidus cylinder and what is called the Persian verse account of Nabonidus has laid aside any doubts that Belshazzar did exist. And he was, at the least, part of the last royal family of Babylon and was the son of King Nabonidus of Babylon. But that didn't end the list of controversies about the mention of Belshazzar. Because in truth, in the Babylonian records, he's always referred to as the son of the king, King Nabonidus. Never simply as the king. However, since several Daniel passages refer to Belshazzar specifically as the king, then Bible critics say this is a historical error, not just a copying error, and further proof that Daniel's a work of legend and fiction. What we found with a little bit of digging and some connecting of the dots was that King Nabonidus, who was a former military commander, felt more comfortable leading military excursions than he did ruling like a politician from his throne in Babel. So he ventured far to faraway places, leading his army, for most of the years that he's credited with being Babylon's king. So Nabonidus left his biological son, Belshazzar, in charge of the empire while he was away. And naturally, Belshazzar was the man whom Daniel and all others in the royal court dealt with on a daily basis and who rightfully was the face of that monarchy for years to come. Other than for the army... Belshazzar ruled over every aspect of life in the Babylonian Empire such as any Oriental monarch would. Therefore, what else would a person meeting him face to face call him? 
as they approached him on the throne in the palace in Babel, but king, even if he was the junior king to his father, the senior king. And among anthropologists and historians and archaeologists, this type of of arrangement is called a co-regency. That is, the king and his heir rule simultaneously for anywhere from a few days to a few years. It was a rather common situation. Thus, the supposed controversy over calling uh, over Daniel calling Balshazzar king is just a tempest in a teapot at best. At worst, it's a rather disingenuous attempt to make the book of Daniel guilty of falsehood until proven innocent. Then there is this final sticky matter of Nebuchadnezzar being called Belshazzar's father in a number of passages in Daniel chapter 5. There is no reasonable way that Belshazzar was, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's biological father unless all the discovered documents, all the discovered king's lists are wrong. And all in exactly the same way. From a chronology standpoint, Belshazzar could have been a biological son of Nebuchadnezzar since Belshazzar ruled only 12 years or so after Nebuchadnezzar's death. However, Babylonian records make it clear that Belshazzar's biological father was Nabonidus, who was in no way related to Belshazzar, his descendants. Therefore, neither could Belshazzar have been related to Nebuchadnezzar. But one merely has to read the Bible carefully to realize that the term father, Abba, is used in a a number of different ways and contexts. R.D. Wilson identifies at least eight of them, and that's not totally unlike it is in our time. Father doesn't only mean biological father. It can mean grandfather. It can mean non-blood-related stepfather and a host of other things. And one of the common uses, common uses, of the term father in the Bible is to indicate a founder of some sort or, or a family patriarch like Father Abraham, the founder of the Hebrew race. And it was often a term that was used for the first of a dynasty or it merely indicated a venerated ancestor. Therefore, from a Bible criticism scholar's viewpoint, had this mention of Nebuchadnezzar as a father to Belshazzar come from anywhere else than the Bible, they would have tasked themselves with trying to determine which application of those eight customary ways that the term father is regularly used in ancient times was meant to be used in this passage. But instead, since it's the Bible, then the only way they're satisfied to take it is as biological son. And since, admittedly, Belshazzar can't be a biological son to Nebuchadnezzar, then they say it's a statement of misinformation sad, is it not? It truly is. It is really sad that the discipline of Bible criticism represents the leading Bible commentators of our time. For the past century. They represent the leadership at most of our Bible colleges. They dominate our Christian seminaries. 
And so we have legions of young pastors fresh out of seminary who've been subjected to this kind of liberal mindset that has as its main purpose to discredit the Holy Scriptures. That they no doubt at first thought they were going to be taught how to uphold. So this week, we're going to tackle a few more controversial issues about the book of Daniel. But first, I want to pause in order to encourage you today. Something I probably ought to do more often. And I encourage you in this way. Do not succumb. Do not back down to what has become the leading theology in modern Judeo-Christendom that attempts to evolve our faith into more of a human philosophy than a spiritually centered belief system that it was at its birth. Most secular and even so-called Christian colleges today have placed the subject disciplines of Christianity as well as Judaism into the philosophy department and done away with the religion department as a move of political correctness. The goal of Bible criticism and liberalism is to have you believe in the Jesus philosophy but to not believe in Yeshua as divine or as Savior or to believe in His Holy Word. You don't have to be afraid of facing these folks thinking that because of their education background they're going to make you look foolish. And this is because, first of all, what they teach is often intellectually dishonest on its face. And their base premise of the non-existence of the spiritual realm, the non-existence of predictive prophecy, the absence of miracles, it's all circular in argument. And second, and perhaps most pertinent to every believer, it's because you don't have to simply freeze up and then chalk up your belief in the truth of the Bible to only faith. Certainly faith is central to every believer's belief system and to understanding Holy Scripture. Just as it's true that Bible critics aren't always wrong, they raise at times legitimate questions that aren't so easy to reconcile. And we should be ready to admit that. It's not necessary that every question the Bible presents has to have a firm and provable answer. But if you will continue to study the Scriptures with dedication, if you'll take the time to learn God's Word from the beginning, if you'll approach it from its original Hebrew context, if you'll dig a little more into Hebrew and Middle Eastern history, and if you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and teach you and unlock God's mysteries, you're going to have a deep enough understanding to reply with an intelligent rebuttal that will often send these liberal Bible, Bible critics away muttering to themselves or even silenced. I can tell you that from experience. I've talked with several of you who tell me 
how you have been at at dinner or lunch and talking casually with a, a friend or a family member who starts to question the Bible or your faith and that you were shocked at the knowledge that came out of your mouth in reply. You suddenly realized you knew things about God and His Word and His patterns and principles you didn't even realize you knew. You see, the Bible was never meant to be the sole province of academics, Sumerians, and theologians. The Bible was written for you, for us, for everyone of God's elect to understand and to digest and to to follow as our life guide. And many of you, thank the Lord, have discovered this reality. So as I have endeavored to show you at every step of the way in our methodical study of Daniel that each accusation of falsehood and error against this book can usually be addressed and rebuffed without us looking like a deer caught in the headlights. And we can also avoid having to resort to well, I'll just believe what I want to believe and you believe what you want to believe. That's a terrible fallback position. So hang in there as we continue. These details that we're delving into matter. You can comprehend them. You can remember them. Well, since we read the entire chapter 5 last week, we're going to reread parts of chapter 5 this week. So open your Bibles back up to Daniel chapter 5. And let's see. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 1105. We're just going to read the first four verses. Belshazzar the king gave a great banquet for a thousand of his lords. And in the presence of the thousand, he was drinking wine. And while tasting the wine, Belshazzar ordered that the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had removed from the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines could all drink from them. <clears throat> so they brought the gold vessels, which had been removed from the sanctuary of the house of God, into Jerusalem. And the king... <clears throat> And his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank their wine. They praised their gods. Made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Bel Shatzar is throwing a party. For about a thousand of his closest friends. It was an oriental custom that the king would sit in front of the room on a raised platform so that his guests could take their cues by watching him. And this king wanted to drink copious amounts of wine and get drunk. Now, some scholars claim that the reason for this party was religious. And that's why the king used the Jerusalem temple goblets. In other words, the use of those temple vessels was, even if mistakenly, actually meant to show honor to the God of the Jews. But that ignores the plain statements of the text, that the vessels were used to praise other gods and goddesses. 
Other Bible academics say that since we know that immediately following this party, Belshazzar was killed, so it says in verse 30, that this must have been one uh, one last great fleeing as the king sensed the inevitability and immediacy of Babylon's coming fall to the Persians and the Medes. That may even be more fanciful than the first suggestion. The reality is we're not told the reason for this party. So a better thought might be that as a king, as with most kings, he liked parties, especially when they were in his honor. And with the mention of his wives and concubines being in attendance, drinking right along with him, the sordid and common intent of this party is obvious. However, the rabbis have another answer. And you know what? It's a pretty good one. Recorded in Talmud tractate uh, tractate, uh, Megillah 11b, it said that the occasion for the party was as a kind of response to the prophecy of Jeremiah that the Jews would be exiled under the power of Babylon for precisely 70 years and then it would end when Babylon was conquered by another people. So according to Babylonian reckoning, the 70 years had passed. The Jews were still captive in Babylon. Babylon was still standing as a Babylonian empire. Thus a national celebration was called for to mock the God of the Jews who, in the end, couldn't deliver on his prophetic promise that had been given through his prophet Jeremiah. So Belshazzar took the gold and the silver temple ritual vessels that the earlier Babylonian kings had been pretty careful not to defile up to this point and he used them to drink toasts to his gods who, according to the ancient way of thinking, had defeated the God of the Jews and prevented this people from being released from the power of Babylon. Were these rabbis correct? Nothing about their explanation is improbable and it actually fits pretty nicely. But we can't know that with absolute certainty. Another reasonable explanation as to why breaking with a tradition of almost 70 years of showing respect to these sacred temple objects, this king ordered the temple goblets to be brought to him is that he was drunk. He was already drunk. He'd lost any sense of appropriateness or caution. And it's obvious from the context that these vessels had been stored away for safekeeping since Nebuchadnezzar's day. They were considered spoils of war, property of the king, and they were proof for folks of that era that the Babylonian gods were superior to the gods of the Jews, at least when it came to war. But we don't see Nebuchadnezzar directly mocking God by using them even though he did grow prideful and arrogant thinking his own greatness had built his empire, we still see him acknowledging the power of this God, especially after suffering through a a period of madness that the Lord warned he was going to inflict upon him, and he did. But with the passing of time, the death of Nebuchadnezzar, not to mention the influence of a few liters of wine, 
This young king, who is the final king of Babylon, was feeling no fear. And worse, he was showing no respect. Verse 4 once again mentions the drinking of wine. So as to emphasize that this was the main activity of the party. As C.F. Keel says, the wickedness of it lay in this that they drank out of holy vessels of the temple of the God of Israel to glorify their heathen gods in songs of praise. Belshazzar, in his inebriated state, didn't realize that he had just picked a very public, unwinnable fight with the creator of the universe. Let's read some more of Daniel 5. We're going to read 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared, began writing on the plaster of the palace wall by the lampstand. And when the king saw the palm of the hand that was writing, the king's face took on a different look. As frightening thoughts rose up within him, in him, his hip joints gave way, his knees started knocking together. The king cried out, to bring in the exorcists and astrologers and diviners. And the king said to the sages of Babel, whoever can read this inscription and tell me what it means will be dressed in royal purple, wear a gold chain around his neck, and be one of the three men ruling this kingdom. But although all of the king's sages came in, none could read the inscription or tell the king what it meant. Then King Belshazzar became terrified. His face turned pale. His lords were thrown into confusion. Suddenly the king and his guests quit their revelry as they witnessed something that shook them into sobriety. Out of nowhere, fingers, part of a hand, began writing on the palace wall, which was being lit up by a candelabra. Verse 5 emphasizes that the king saw the writing as it occurred. However, the remainder of the story makes it clear that it wasn't only the king who saw it. It was visible to everyone present and to the Chaldean seers who were summoned to interpret its meaning. Now it's interesting that this verse specifically mentions that the mysterious writing was on the plaster of the wall. Archaeologists who have explored the ruins of Babel report that the interior walls of the royal palace that was in existence then were indeed coated in painted white plaster. So one can imagine that any dark object moving across that brilliant plaster white background would show up pretty well. The king turned as pale as the wall and grew weak upon witnessing such an astounding thing. Verse 6, although it says it's slightly different in the complete Jewish Bible, what it says literally is, the king's loins were loosed. In In the complete Jewish Bible, it talks about his hips, his hip joints. Well, this is an expression. It's an idiom. And I've spoken to you before about how in ancient times various organs of the body were assumed to contain certain functions. 
many of which served as repositories of specific emotions. The heart, however, wasn't one of them. The heart was not a place of emotion. It was the place of thinking and reasoning. The kidneys and the liver, however, were two such organs that emitted emotions. The loins was conceived as another one. And this is where it was believed that fear and anxiety came from. Verse 7 embellishes the narrative by saying that the king cried out for his royal guild of the black arts to come and explain this knee-knocking event. In fact, the Aramaic better translates to call loudly, meaning, of course, that he screamed for them he was so terror-filled. And one can easily picture how nearly paralyzed with fear he was ready to offer anything for a remedy. So he offers to give the one who can decipher this writing a purple cloak and a gold chain. Purple is the color that royalty wears. And the gold chain is meant as an insignia of authority. The words say that the interpreter would be one of the three men ruling the kingdom or receive one-third of the kingdom. But the, these words are, are, are difficult to translate. Most likely it is that this person would, be, would become the third in command over Babylon. First in command was Nabonidus. Second, his son the co-regent, Belshazzar, and then whoever was next after Belshazzar was about to get replaced. Even with such an unprecedented reward, right there for the taking, none of the Chaldean seers had the answer to what was being written on that wall. Let's move on read just a little bit more. Daniel 5, 10-12. At this point, the queen mother, because of what the king and his lords were saying, entered the banquet hall. And the queen mother said, May the king live forever. Don't be scared by your thoughts or let your face be so pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he was found to have light, discernment, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, your father, made him chief of the magicians, exorcists, astrologers, and diviners because he was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, discernment, and the ability to interpret dreams and unlock mysteries and solve naughty problems. He is called Daniel. But the king gave him the name Belshazzar. Now have Daniel summoned and he'll tell you what this means. Beginning with verse 10, we plunge right back into controversy. We actually talked about these three verses at length last week. And we reviewed them to begin today's lesson with regards to the identification of the queen and whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was actually Belshazzar's father in the common biological sense. The conclusion was that the term father merely meant that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the father in the sense of being a founder, being the patriarch of the current Babylonian empire and therefore father of the current series of Babylonian monarchs. Now as to the queen, she's still a bit of a mystery. Seems that she was quite familiar with Nebuchadnezzar. She knew a lot of the inner workings of the palace. 
She knew Nebuchadnezzar's reasons for him calling upon Daniel, the Jewish exile, to interpret the king's dreams and visions, and why it was that he had placed this Hebrew foreigner in charge of his all-important royal guild of Chaldean seers, a thing which embarrassed, by the way, and infuriated all of those Chaldean seers. And she knew not only his Jewish name, Daniel, but also his Babylonian name, Belt-Shetzar. Now while there's no way to know for certain, there are no records to verify it. It seems likely that this queen was Nebuchadnezzar's main wife. Now recall the time period we're dealing with here. Specifically, it's only 13, 14 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. So, since wives were usually quite young when compared with their husbands, that his wife would still be alive and revered and seen as an important advisor to the current king and allowed free access to the palace, to the throne room, it's quite likely that this is the identity of the queen, although we don't know her royal name. In fact, that's more or less the consensus of Bible scholars of all disciplines. Now, whether where this disagreement comes from among them is as to whether or not she was also Belshazzar's biological mother, something the scriptures don't tell us. But that's not out of the realm of possibility. Might it be that this queen is actually King Nabonidus's, Belshazzar's father's, wife? And that's why she's front and center in the story. Perhaps as kind of an additional set of eyes and ears in the palace during Nabonidus's extended absences. If so, then she probably was Belshazzar's biological mother. But if that's the case, it's nearly unthinkable that she also would have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife at one time. Again, scriptures don't tell us one way or another. So we're still stuck with speculation no matter which way we turn as to who this queen is. In any case, she makes a strong recommendation to the king that since Daniel was so highly thought of by the patriarch Nebuchadnezzar, that Belshazzar ought to summon him immediately to try and untangle this mystery of those writings on the plaster wall. In fact, the tone of the narrative makes it makes her suggestion seem far more like an urgent instruction. Go get him now. And this raises the question of whether or not Daniel was still in charge of the Chaldean Seers Guild. He probably wasn't. Otherwise, the king would have been very well aware of him. No urging would have been needed. No stating of Daniel's credentials. Just as in modern politics, however, when regimes change, there are changes in those who are given high positions in the government administration. So Daniel probably was no longer in charge of the Chaldean seers. Let's read a little bit more of Daniel, starting at verse 13. We'll go to 23. Daniel was brought into the king's presence. The king said to Daniel, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, whom the king, my father, brought out of Judah? I've heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have been found to have light and discernment and extraordinary wisdom. 
Now, the sages and the exorcists were brought into me so that they could read this inscription and tell me what it means, but they, they couldn't interpret it for me. However, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve naughty problems. Now, if you can read the inscription and tell me what it means, you will be dressed in royal purple, wear a gold chain around your neck, and be one of the three men ruling the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the God Most High, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father the kingdom, as well as greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness he gave him, all the peoples and nations and languages trembled with fear before him. Anyone he wanted to, he put to death. Anyone he wanted to, he kept alive. Anyone he wanted to, was advanced. Anyone he wanted to, he humbled. But when he grew proud and his spirit became hard, he began treating people arrogantly. So he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from human society. His heart was made like that of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he learned that the Most High God rules in the human kingdom and he sets up over it whomever he pleases. But Belshazzar, you his son, you've not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven by having them bring you the vessels from his house. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines, you drank wine from them. Then you offered praise to your gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and stone, which can't see, can't hear, know anything. Meanwhile, God, who holds your very breath in His hands, to whom everything belong, uh, every, to whom belongs everything you do, you have not glorified. I think Daniel's most outstanding characteristic, at least as far as the Babylonian kings were concerned, was his, in, his, in his ability to accurately interpret dreams and visions. So this gives me an opportunity for a brief but important detour. Another general controversy over the book of Daniel is its placement in the Hebrew Bible. Daniel is not listed among the books of the prophets, the Nevi'im. Nor is he considered to be a prophet along the lines of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Rather, he is listed among the writings that Ketuvim, along with books like Ruth and Esther and Psalms. So, say Bible critics, this is proof of itself that not only is Daniel a very late book, they say it was written at 165 BC, a claim that, by the way, we've examined and we thoroughly punctured that, but also that the rabbinical council didn't regard Daniel's sayings as legitimately uh, prophetic. Rather, they say, Daniel was seen only as a legendary, though valuable, story. Therefore, although the rabbinic council 
that settled the canon of the Old Testament didn't feel confident in including him among the great prophets. The book itself was so highly revered, so widely read among the Jews and in synagogues, well, they just couldn't leave it out, so they had to place it in a less authoritative position in the Bible. That's what they say. None of that line of thinking holds water. It only fulfills an agenda. First of all, the Ketuvim, the writings, is not where the questionable books or writers of uh, writings of lesser inspiration were placed in the Bible. There's no such thing. The various categories were simply a way to create structure and they were created for the sake of order and organization that's not much different in concept than the eventual way that later scholars divided each Bible book into chapters and then into verses. By what authority does a Bible scholar decide where a chapter starts and ends and when a verse starts and ends? Their own. Second of all, the category of prophets, Nevi'im, is divided into two subcategories called the early prophets, the Nevi'im Rishonim, and the later prophets, the Nevi'im Acharonim. The early prophets included books like Joshua and Judges and Kings. Thus we see that the definition, think back to those books, what was in them, the definition of prophets and prophecy changed over time in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And it took yet another turn in the New Testament. Now this isn't the time or the place to get into what is a, a lengthy discussion on the differences. Suffice it to say that, dis, that, that despite how it seems to us in modern times, the term prophecy did not always or only mean making a prediction of the future. Rather, it could mean simply recalling God's word to mind. Or like in the New Testament, it can mean something similar to the Hebrew concept of Midrash. That is, existing scripture is quoted then it's discussed and it's debated among learned men to extract meaning. And in the case of the New Testament, where about one half of the words of the New Testament are but Old Testament scripture quotations, it is that Paul and Peter and John and others generally dealt with Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and with the Torah laws of the law of Moses, and then they engaged in Midrash. They discussed them in light of the new reality that the Messiah has finally come. Who he turned out to be. Issue of Nazareth. And what this now means for the faithful, on the one hand, and on the unfaithful, on the other hand. And even how the faithful and the unfaithful are defined. And perhaps most importantly, who can belong to the kingdom of Christ? Thus, Daniel doesn't fall within the definition of an earlier or a later prophet, even though he does so much predictive prophesying. 
the most visible and unique characteristic that separates Daniel from others is that he did his predictive prophesying in service to a series of pagan kings and never to an Israelite king. I mentioned that Psalms was also part of the same category that Daniel was placed in, the Ketuvim, the writings. And of course, Psalms is noted for having a number of predictive prophecies intertwined within them, including, of course, messianic prophecies. Yet Psalms, like Daniel, is not included among the books of the prophets. Bottom line, Biblical categories are just human attempts to create some type of order and they're inherently imprecise. Thus, where a book such as Daniel is placed in the Bible is anything but God-orchestrated, thus, in fact, the typical Hebrew Bible is ordered differently than the typical Christian Bible, and in some cases, the two don't even have the same number of books. So to try to discredit the book of Daniel because around 2,000 years ago, a rabbinic council decided to place it in the category of writings instead of prophets is a contrived, if not shameful, argument designed only to destroy and not to build up the body of Messiah. Well, back to our story. Daniel arrived. He stood before Belshazzar and he told him that he would interpret the writings that supernaturally appeared, but that he had no interest in monetary rewards. That kind of response no doubt went a long way to prove to the king that Daniel had no personal advancement in mind. What he'd tell the king was truthful, there was no agenda. I don't believe that his refusal was disrespectful, it wasn't a curt retort to the king's offer of riches and position. It only kind of appears that way when translated into English and set into our 21st century cultural setting. Rather, it was just saying, no thank you. Because Daniel's motives were such that self-interest just wasn't part of the equation. You can contrast that to the never-ending self-interest of the members of the Chaldean Black Arts Guild. But before Daniel tells the king the meaning of the writings on the wall, he reminded him not only of the greatness of his patriarch, Nebuchadnezzar, but what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when pride and arrogance overtook him and God placed him on par with animals as a consequence of that. He reminds him that it was the God Most High. Notice again, no name, just a title. It was the God Most High who gave Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian kingdom and all of his greatness and all of his honor. And it was because of what the God Most High, the Elay or the El, did for Nebuchadnezzar that the entire world bowed down to this great king. But it was also because Nebuchadnezzar failed to give the God Most High his due that he took everything from him. Now no doubt the reason for Daniel saying what he did 
was to impress upon Belshazzar that he didn't come near to measuring up to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's remember that technically this kingdom didn't even belong to Belshazzar, but rather to his father, Nabonidus. So as staggering and without boundary was the reach and the power of Nebuchadnezzar, so as limited was Belshazzar's reach and power. And yet, says Daniel in verse 22, knowing all this, knowing it, he still has foolishly decided to take on God. Despite this king being so very aware of what happened, even to the incomparable Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar has trespassed even more deeply upon the God Most High. Thus we find no warning to him to repent. No possibility of reprieve, not even for a time. No offer to the king to turn and receive grace. Belshazzar had crossed over some great cosmic line in the sand, established and known only to the Lord of heaven and earth. He had been judged. His fate was sealed. It could not be altered. We've seen this pattern before. And we see it expressed yet again in a future time some 600 years after Daniel. Listen to this in Hebrews 10, 23-29. Let us continue holding fast to the hope we acknowledge without wavering. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us keep paying attention to one another in order to spur each other on to love and to good deeds. Not neglecting our own congregational meetings, as some have made the practice of doing, but rather encouraging each other. And let us do this all the more as you see that day approaching. For if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies. Someone who disregards the Torah of Moses is put to death without mercy on the word of two or three witnesses. Think how much worse will be the punishment deserved by someone who has trampled underfoot the Son of God who is treated as something common, the blood of the covenant which made him holy, who has insulted the Spirit, the giver of God's grace.